City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Welcome to City Limits. I'm Meg Kimber. I'm here with Zeb. Hey, Zeb, how are you going? Hi, good. How are you going in lockdown? Uh, let's park. Can I pass on that question and yeah, go absolutely. to the next one? <laughs> um, how are you going? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going all right. I still have work, so okay. it feels still slightly normal for me. But um, Yeah, totally. I feel like this last couple of weeks has not been full of, like, lovely news. It has not. It's been a tough couple of weeks. And um, so today on City Limits, you know, I know we have, like, a bit of a reputation to uphold in terms of um, sharing tough news with people. But I actually have some good news this week, I guess, like a little glimmer of good news about the uh, national electricity grid. Uh-huh. Um, so we'll come to that in a minute. And also later in the show, you're speaking with some activists for a disability access on public transport. Is that right? Yeah, we've got Ali and Martin um, from the Disability Resources Centre to talk about tram accessibility. We talked to uh, Kerry also from the DRC a while back and this is going to be an update about where things have got to now. So it'll be good to hear from them. Great. I'm looking forward to hearing that. So news this week. What what have we got? Yes, let me find my news. In this busy couple of news weeks. I guess uh, if anyone was listening last week, we did have a a repeat of City Limits. So uh, we hope everyone enjoyed that. We were um, having to adjust to the new lockdown rules and weren't able to go into the studio. So apologies for anyone who missed us. Okay, so, well... The news that I have is, yeah, really following on from not great things happening. Um, I got sent this from Gab from 3CR and it's it's like a media release from the Climate Council uh, saying that July was another record for hottest um, July uh, ever (laughs) recorded. (laughs) Um, And... Mm. So, yeah, July was the world's hottest month on record. Uh, Another warning about the worsening impacts of climate change and the urgent need to reduce emissions, as everybody already knows. Mm. Uh, The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration found that July was 0.93 degrees Celsius above the 20th century average and the highest since global records began in 1880. So, yes, I feel like it's not too much of a surprise to anyone, but I guess we have to stay updated about these things. Totally. Um, Have we talked about the IPCC yet on City Limits? Did I miss? We talked about it a little bit. Yeah, Yeah, with um, Dave Sweeney, Mm. especially the... 
uh, sort of energy side. Um, and one good thing to come from the IPCC report was that they they barely mentioned nuclear power um, as an option, and when they did, they really highlighted the dangers of nuclear power generation. So, good. I feel like yeah. that is a bit of a positive. Mm. And I've spoken uh, recently, actually, with um, Han from the. Uh, I'm having a blank on the name, but um, looking at getting a guest in next month to talk about the power of the coal lobby and federal government. So uh-huh. I think that's a big part of this uh, just criminal level of inaction from the federal government on these issues. Yeah. And, um, yeah, actually one of the articles that, that I was looking at this week, which is uh, kind of kind of a good news story, um, talking about that there was a moment um, recently where uh, solar power outstripped energy generation um, from coal for the first time um, since the uh, national energy market was set up two decades ago. Mm-hmm. So apparently it was just a crossover point for a few minutes um, as there was low demand and sunny skies, which meant the contribution from coal dropped to a low of 9,315 megawatts, while solar power provided 9,427 megawatts. So, yes. So it's like apparently it's because it's like um, a bit of a shoulder season. So you have low demand because there's no heating really needed and there's no cooling really needed and then there's also nice weather on the weekend and um when you combine those factors you get the extra share of renewable energy that that pushes that coal but um they were saying in the article uh, that in order to for australia to meet its commitments under the paris climate change agreement um it needs 51 gigawatts of renewable energy generation by 2042, but there's only three gigawatts of new wind and solar projects that have been committed to, leaving a 48 gigawatt shortfall. Right. That is a little bit of a gap. <laughs> Just a bit, yeah. But Just sure, a I'll bit. grasp onto that bit of good yeah, news. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was a little glimmer of good news in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I kind of did a small update the other the last week that we were live um, talking about community batteries and why they're mm. good basically because they sort of get around the prohibitive individual costs of having like in-home mm. batteries mm. while avoiding some of the tech issues of giant batteries. Um, is basically the idea of them. Um, and I also went into like a little, little researchy deep dive, uh, which I was kind of excited about. It's probably really dry information, but uh, it was interesting to me that as well as, so as well as solar being what's called an intermittent um, energy provider, so obviously it provides energy when it's sunny not when it's nighttime or cloudy and same with wind you know it's only going to provide energy sometimes mm. um 
it's also like difficult when lots of individual rooftop solar things are providing energy um, at lots of random times. Um, mm. Not impossible to deal with, but it's kind of another reason why storing that energy and then releasing it like at a more controllable rate is advantageous because mm. basically you need in a like energy network you need to try and have the supply and the demand of energy be equal all the time to keep the frequency at the like required rate so in mm. Australia it's going to be 50 hertz and if the frequency changes too much either way of 50 hertz uh, then you start getting damage to like various equipment in the system mm. so yeah I thought that was interesting and yeah basically like another point to why uh, energy storage is important energy storage yeah um and also um this this article that i was quoting before it was it's from the guardian actually um from the 23rd of august um mm -hmm. it also sort of talked about um energy prices going into negative which, uh, from what I understand, is when basically producers are paid to consume or energy producers are paying to keep running. Mm -hmm. So, like, coal generators are really, there's, like, heaps of costs associated with shutting down and then yeah. restarting coal generators, whereas solar and wind are, like, by their nature, much more nimble and much more able to deal with those kind of fluctuations in need from what I can tell which makes them even more suitable I suppose yeah so you know perhaps in the future when we're not relying on coal that will be like a plus for whoever's totally. interested in making money yeah yeah <laughs> it kind of comes down to that at the moment yeah but it is interesting how like there needs to be some sort of centralized system operator mm. if you have a grid like we do at the moment mm. to mm. be trying to like frantically measure and predict how much power people are going to use throughout the day or like mm. also yeah different parts of the year yeah so complicated very complicated um another bit of news i've got a couple of items but maybe i'll pick one that is uh slightly positive as well um, there is, there's a festival of urbanism going on from the 13th to the 24th of September, which sounds really interesting. Uh, mm. The theme is endangered urbanism. Um, and their sort of like blurb is the global pandemic, social division, economic turmoil, housing shocks and the climate crisis, all good stuff. <laughs> some of the threats facing our urban environment, but how can cities adapt and transition from these crises? So very appropriate for city limits. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to have lots of free online events um, all throughout that week in September. So maybe we'll put the link in the show notes and people can check it out if they're interested. Yeah. It, and it's all, is it a nationwide event? I think it's accessible nationwide, but it looks like 
let's see. The 2021 Festival of Urbanism is a public forum to discuss, share, and learn about current urban challenges. And that was from a professor at Monash University. So it might be a sort of mm. uh, Melbourne-based event. Interesting. Yeah. Looks like the link for people to find out more is festivalofurbanism.com. Yep. Yeah, and there's a few interesting kind of like um, articles and, and events and... Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, and also, speaking of going back to our past conversation with Dave Sweeney, mm-hmm. people want to get involved in this thing called the ICANN Cities Appeal. Um, which mm. is a global call from cities and towns um, to support the the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, you can get your local council, or you can try and get your local council to pledge support for the treaty. Um, mm. And thirty six councils in Australia have already signed up, so that's another bit of good news. Um, <laughs> We're really cheering people up on city limits today. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> <laughs> Kevin would have a lot of stuff from the Herald Sun. Yeah. But we will have to save that for next week. So tune in next week, listeners. There'll be a big build up and then next week it will just be full of Herald Sun. A lot of Herald Sun news, I think. Yeah. Yeah, cool. That sounds great. Like Dave Sweeney works so hard and all of the campaigners that work on this issue. Amazing success to have like achieved that going into international law like yeah brilliant but i i listened back to the show and it was a really good one and like i love the question that you asked about how how these kind of weapons and and technologies get developed and how people feel about them i thought that was a really interesting question um but yeah it's not as simple as getting something made into law then everybody has to all the countries have to actually agree to follow through uh uh-huh. isn't it yeah, yeah so yeah yeah I have vaguely heard about various ways that people can, or like universities in particular, can get around mm. their kind of ethics, um, <laughs> like research ethics proposals yep. by saying like it's just a small part of something or it's, you know, mm. it's like researching increased aerodynamics of blah de blah and then right. you yeah. can like sort of wave it away as, Mm. technological progress but really mm. the main reason that you're getting funding is because it's going to be used in some sort of weaponry yeah 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 incredible and so many universities are increasingly yeah funded by arms manufacturers so mm-hmm. yeah very concerning um well we're coming up to maybe time that we need to stop take a little break play some community service announcements maybe a little song and come back with our guests yep see you soon you're listening to 3cr community radio melbourne's voice of dissent 3cr community radio 855 on the am dial streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3cr digital in melbourne city limits producer karina here Uh, I thought the next track would be rather appropriate for our first news item that was discussed this week, actually. Maybe 
a nice uplifting spin on the rather grim news topic of another hottest July on record. Yeah, this is Master Blaster by Stevie Wonder. Enjoy.
3CR Community Radio, 855am. Okay, welcome back to City Limits on 3CR. We've got Ali Scott and Martin Leckie, both from the Disability Resources Centre here, uh, to chat about tram accessibility or lack of accessibility um, and how that campaign has been going. So welcome to you both. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Uh, firstly, I don't know if this is a dangerous question to ask, but how are things going in lockdown? Oh, not bad for me. Not bad. That's good to hear. It's like wading through mud. The lack of human contact makes everything really muddy, I find. Well, I, I get it. Attendant carers who come in to help me every day, so I get some contact. I've got my housemate. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. Yeah, time becomes a little bit meaningless for me, but we'll, su- we'll survive, hopefully. Alrighty. Um, so perhaps let's start and maybe give a sort of overview and a background to the campaign for tram accessibility, because I know we did talk about it a while back with Kerry, but Basically, this campaign has, in a sense, been going on for 40 years. Is that right? Yeah, so just to recap on that, it's an astonishing thing to think that the Disability Resources Centre was set up in 1981 when um, people who had effectively battled out of institutional settings found they couldn't fully engage in work, education, culture and social connection because they couldn't use public transport. And so, and of course, uh, much of the disability community is made up of people that don't drive. And so they rely on public transport to get around. And so it's been a really big part of DRC's work ever since then. And we're still, still battling with the same thing. Yeah. And I've been involved um, since 1995, really. When I got, I had a car accident, got my disability, quadriplegia, and ended up in a wheelchair. I found, you know, couldn't get access. And the DRC helped me out with some complaints about access to buses and trains. And so I joined the DRC after that. So it's been going, we've been very heavily involved in transport campaigning since I joined in 2002. And that's been ongoing. Yeah, and it's really quite amazing when you think about the, the projects the mega projects that are going on in transport at the moment, like the Melbourne Metro Tunnel, uh, what's it called, the uh, the like overflies for the trains. So it's obviously possible. Uh, why do you think that the government hasn't fulfilled its commitment to tram accessibility? Well, unfortunately, they're not putting people with disabilities at a high priority. I mean, we are supposed to be seventeen percent of the population. So it's not. It's a lot, and some other, but other some other people have uh, louder voices. For example, the traders, when it always goes to council, and then the traders oppose building the new accessible tram stops because they lose a few parking spaces. Yeah, and um, they get the the ears of the politicians, and it gets delayed. So I think that's part of the reason. So we just have to be stronger at campaigning, but I think. Most of the public are behind us. They, you know, they really do think it's unfair that we don't have access to public transport. So somehow we've got to channel that support and uh, get the government properly funding access to 
trams in particular, as what we're talking about today, because it's illegal under the Disability Discrimination Act not to provide access to people with disabilities. And the Disability Discrimination Act, yes, born in 1992. And then the, there were some transport standards brought in under the Act uh, that had a timetable for making it accessible from 2002 uh, until 2022. And um, the government just missed all the targets along the way. It was supposed to be 90% accessible by 2017. Yeah. And they were still only up to about 23% accessible uh, for the tram stops. And they're supposed to be fully accessible by the end of uh, next year. But um, there's no way they're going to make that target. So they just need to put the funding into building those stops. It's not coming so far. So far. So that's what we're complaining about. And we've now launched a legal action as well to, regarding that. Yeah, so that's the VCAT case. Is that based on the legal grounds from the Act? Yeah, it's well, we've submitted under the Victorian Equal Opportunity, Equal Opportunity Act. Uh, we had a choice whether to go with the Federal Disability Discrimination Act or the Victorian Equivalent Act, which is the Equal Opportunity Act, but um, we chose to go to the Victorian legislation because um, you can't get, or usually you don't get costs awarded against you if you lose whereas there's a risk under the federal legislation of getting costs awarded against you. So that's partly why we've chosen to use the Equal Opportunity Act. Yeah, and we've, you can submit to go, because often it goes, if it's, not, if it's not settled in mediation, it goes to the Victorian or the VCAT. Anyway, we're going to straight to the um, VCAT, uh, which is the the body that hears the um, complaint or that resolves the complaint or, you know, comes to some sort of decision. Yeah, this is the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal. So some complaints go, can go straight to that tribunal if they think they're not going to um, resolve in mediation in, a, in another way. So we've, we don't think it'll be resolved very easily because... You know they have to go so far and spend so much money to do it. So we've we've applied to go straight to VCAT, and there will be a hearing. Um, so we've lodged that complaint in um, July. There's five of us who are all wheelchair users who suffer discrimination cannot use the tram network hardly at all. Have submitted this complaint, and there will be a two Victorian Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. But through it'll go through the be resolved by the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal, PCAT. But that might take a year. Okay, yeah. And so in the case that you are successful, what would be the the results of that? What would be the the implications for what the Victorian government would have to do? Like would they have to make a commitment in the budget? Or would they have to give compensation? Well, that's we're not sure exactly what we've asked for. Very general, I've asked them be get to find that the government is discriminating against us, and to put forward any other condition on the government that the government has to fulfil. We're not sure of how far they will be willing to um, put forward. I mean, 
yes, we've got limited expectations about what they will actually get the government to do, but compensation could be part of it. But mainly we want, you know, to get the access to the tram network. Yeah, of course. So we're going to use it. It's partly a political, it's a way of getting political uh, attention as much as um, what we hope to get out of the legal case itself. But we, yeah, we do hope to get that they will have a finding in our favour and that something will come out of it. But at the same time, we've got to keep up the other avenues of pressure on the government and campaigning. So it's just part of that overall campaign, which we've been running for quite a long time now. Okay. And so at the same time as that, there's the sort of running concurrently, there's the 500 days campaign. So Ali, did you want to maybe talk a little bit on that? Sure. So as Martin was just saying, we're now less than 500 days from the date by which our public transport system is supposed to be fully accessible. There's no way the government can make that day, but we need to draw attention to that and say we need a commitment of some sort by that date towards achieving universal access, a public transport system that everyone can use. And um, what we're looking at is there's two pieces of strategic work that's coming out of the government at the moment. And one of them is a, a tram stop rollout strategy. It's going to be finished later this year. But there's a, that's just a piece of work that's going to sit on a shelf unless the government commits to it and said, right, this is something that we want to achieve in the next government. Um, so there's that piece of strategy. There's, a, there's another piece of strategy called the public transport accessibility strategy. But at the moment, they're just studies. They're just pieces of, of, of strategic work that could sit on a shelf and at the rate of change that we're going at at the moment public transport won't be accessible until 2066 I mean who's going to still be around amongst us then it's just an unthinkable future isn't it yeah um, and so what we what we want them to do is basically commit to achieving universal access with a new speed in the next government. And at the moment, change is very, very slow. It takes two to three years to upgrade a single tram stop in our tram network. Um, right. The last two budgets, they've only committed funding to build two stops, basically. Whereas there's, there's you know, thousands of stops to go to build. And, you know, it's so, it's really cruel to a stop almost the building of level access tram stops, which is um, it's very disappointing. Yeah, and as we talked about um, last time on the show, making one or two stops accessible doesn't make a whole line accessible. So if you only have one accessible stop in the whole tram line, it's of no use. Right. Ugh, ridiculous. Um, so with the campaign, Listeners can support that, can't they? They can uh, email Ben Carroll, uh, Minister Ben Carroll, and we can put um, links to the DRC and to that campaign in the show notes. Um, yeah, is there anything else listeners can be doing to support this? So at the moment, yes, if you go to our DRC website, you'll find the 500 days campaign and there is uh, an email template so you can contact um, Minister Ben Carroll right now and say, 
please deliver this strategy by October next year. Please organize a consultation process to ensure that this work actually meets the needs of the people who it's intended to serve. And hopefully, the more people that do that, the more that the government will realize that there's a real um, interest in this work, because it's not just, as we were saying, about people with disabilities who are wheelchair users, it's people who have all other kinds of mobility issues, people who need seats, people with sensory impairments, people with temporary disabilities, like our Premier recently would have really appreciated accessible public transport. Um, and our seniors and people who use prams. So altogether, this is actually a huge proportion of the Victorian population. We think that as many as one in two Victorians need accessible public transport at some point in their lives. So yes, engaging via our website would be a wonderful thing. Yeah, and you could yeah, contact your local member of parliament and yeah, contact the transport minister and then getting involved yeah, with our campaign, that would be great. I mean, we've been, we uh, conducted a, an action in March where we, um, we blocked a tram stop for a while and got joined, some people from the community joined us there. We had a sort of collaboration with a number of other groups, including Friends of the Earth. There was some support. And, um, yeah, we, we, we had some media response to that. So I don't know if we'll be doing more of those kind of actions. But, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, trying to, yeah, to think of everything we can to uh, push this forward. Amazing. Um, thank you both for the amazing work that you're doing. And, yeah, I really encourage listeners to go and check out the DRC website. Before we go, uh, is there anything else that you want to get in there? Well, I mean, just wanted to bring it mentioned the, um, what's called the Vega report, which is um, a report done by the... Um, Victoria Auditor General's Office. Yeah, Victoria Auditor General's Office. They did a, a report um, on tram accessibility that it was released in October last year to, to look at the, trans, the, the um, progress under the uh, tram access and how it um, related to the transport standards. Yeah, and they found that only 15% of tram services were actually accessible where a low-floor tram met a, a level access stop when we need both, if you're in a wheelchair or other mobility device. You need both the low-floor tram and the level access stop to meet each other. And they found that only that only happens in 15% of cases. So that just shows you how little access there is. And even though they're supposed to be over 90% by now, and so, um, I mean, the, the government has just finished delivering, or is going to shortly finish delivering 100 new um, E-class trams, which are the, the long, um, low-floor trams. And the last of those are going on to Route 58. And then they've announced they're going to buy another 100 um, next-generation trams, which will be shorter ones. It can go on other routes. But... Um, they're yeah they're still so far behind and um that's still not enough trams they still won't make this even even though it has to the infrastructure has to be accessible by 2022 the trams actually don't have to be accessible under standards by 2032 but at the rate they're going now they won't even be accessible they won't even have enough trams or the tram stops 
until well after that. So we need much greater commitment in funding, you know, before next year. That's why we're taking this legal action because we're so frustrated at the slow progress that's happened because the government just hasn't committed the funds to, to building these level access stops. I just thought it would be useful to add as well that whilst it must be impossibly difficult right now to imagine a time when public transport is part of our daily lives again, that in fact this is a really, really useful time to be doing the upgrade work because patronage of public transport is low right now. It's expected to continue to be low for a couple of years. So it really is a perfect opportunity to, um, to, to invest in the work, partly because it's, uh, there are lots of shovel-ready projects. Um, so it's a, it's a hugely, would be an economically valuable piece of work to do. But it also it feels like a very opportune moment. Yeah, so I'll just give an example. There's only one route on the, in the whole of the 24 routes in Melbourne that's basically fully accessible. And that's um, just Route 96. Yeah, there's there's a route near me called Route 96, which goes from Brunswick to St Kilda, and that's the first tram route that's fully accessible. That only happened became fully accessible in um, January of this year, and they've been promising to build that for ten or fifteen years, and they even had the funding ten years ago, and then it went to council and then the council passed it, this, uh, my local council, Yarra Council, City of Yarra. So we had, I went to lots of council meetings and many other people did. We eventually got that through and then the traders complained to the minister and it got delayed and then went back to the council. Anyway, it's been a very slow process, but it's finally built and it does make a big difference for me. I can get into the city on the tram and we'll go to St Kilda. It just shows what a difference it make it will make if if they do build the accessible. And so for so many other people with disabilities who can't use the tram network, um, it's so important for us getting around Melbourne. And often people can't drive; it's not an alternative. So they really rely on public transport. Um, so since that's happened in January, it's really made a big difference. But that's only one one route out of out of all of the 24 that's actually accessible. So, um, you know, it shows that it can be done because um, they have done it with one route. So I think there's no excuse to not committing proper funding to getting it built for the other uh, routes as soon as possible. Yeah, and to what Ali was saying before about it being an opportune moment, it is as well with a sort of public attention. I really appreciated the campaign you had last year at one point that was talking about lifelong lockdown and the sort of opportunity to compare not being able to travel, uh, which everyone is experiencing right now in Melbourne at least, and obviously in Sydney and other places, and perhaps sort of raise that issue as a priority in people's minds of hey this is an important thing not just when covid lockdowns are happening that's absolutely right mm -hmm. yeah well 
looks like uh, we're actually coming to uh, the half hour mark so well done thank you so much for your time and for including us thank you so much for coming and talking yeah mm, thank you well brothers and sisters what a show of strength we've got here today local issues so I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, back on City Limits, uh, we just had um, a great interview with Ali Scott and Martin Leckie from the Disability Resources Centre on tram accessibility. Um, next week, we'll be having more conversations about transport. Yeah, and good, well done, great interview, and good on them for um, all, all the hard work at the DRC for trying to make transport more accessible. It sounds like it's in a really long haul and there's still a lot further to go, unfortunately. But, yeah, it's good to know that there are ways that people can support their campaigns. And as you said in the interview, we'll put that in the show notes for people to, to get in touch and get involved. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.